You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by Epidemic Sound, the company reimagining music licensing for the digital age. Epidemic's library contains tens of thousands of tracks that you can license a la carte or on a subscription basis. Unlike other music licensing companies, Epidemic Sound owns its entire catalog and makes tracks available via one straightforward license to cover all your needs, worldwide and in perpetuity. No more headaches around usage reporting, performance royalties, or murky rights ownership. It's better for the artists and better for you, the creator. So whatever your music needs, Epidemic Sound has got you covered. Welcome back to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today we're joined by Oscar Hoagland, co-founder and CEO of Epidemic Sound. Oscar is a serial entrepreneur from Savaria, that is Sweden, and he's on a mission to change the way we create and consume content, interact, and play. I've been fortunate to get to know Oscar over the past year, and I'm continuously impressed by his visionary insights and willingness to share his experience with others. I'm delighted to call him a friend and so excited to be speaking with him today. Oscar, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, James. It's a true pleasure being here. First of all, I have to ask you, how was my Swedish? Did I pronounce that even close to correctly? I mean, you keep on impressing me. I thought your pronunciation was fantastic. Very, very impressed. (laughs) So the first question here, you completed an MBA and then started your career in management consulting. How did that prepare you for your future professional endeavors as an entrepreneur? There are probably two things that I could highlight from that period in my life. And I was super fortunate to have this experience early on in my career. And it's something that I can't emphasize enough when I talk to people in general. What management consultants are really good at doing is, one, they get to master a lot of different trades. I'm talking about Excel. I'm talking about PowerPoint. I'm talking about number crunching. More important than that, it's the art of asking the right questions. So I think that a critical way of thinking, being structured around how you approach things, is the second thing as well. And so I think the other thing was that after roughly two years, I realized that management consulting in the long term wasn't for me. It started off as a non feeling in the back of my head and then eventually it sort of resonated and it landed because there wasn't somebody who I felt that I wanted to be in 10 years time I couldn't find a role model somebody who's doing something day in day out that they were super passionate about that's like the enigma of being a management consultant you do all this really interesting stuff but it switches all the time you switch team you switch clients you switch uh, partners you work with after a while it becomes quite unfulfilling but sort of reaching that understanding early on in my career, I realized that I needed to do something different because I wasn't passionate about the stuff I was doing. I was constantly changing. The, lean, the learning curve was super steep, but I needed a different context. And this was a huge deal for me back then because I, I just started business school, started working two years. People thought that I had the best job in the world, and I was unhappy, and I quit. And my parents said, so that you, you can't do this. You, you always have to go to a job. You can't leave a job. And my friends thought that it would be really bad for my CV and it's sort of, it wouldn't work out. I was quite miserable. But I trudged on because I had this strong internal feeling that this isn't what I want to do. I'm not passionate. I've learned a lot of stuff, but I have to move on. It sparked my sort of being entrepreneur. And it made me feel more confident about the choices that you make yourself. And so I think that some weird way, there were two sides to it. So one was the work itself, which was really great and helped me a lot. And the other was leaving that line of work helped me eat as much as well. I don't know if I've ever shared this story with you, but I had signed up to do management consulting coming out of school and narrowly dodged that bullet by uh, a good friend, boss and mentor at the time who encouraged me to take the risk and go into the startup space. So I know exactly what you're talking about. I think it's so important to take advice and make sure that you have people around who you can listen to. The fact that you use the word mentor, I think, is something that's great. I don't know what the culture is in the U.S., but in Europe in general, and in Sweden in particular, we're not that skilled at fostering sort of a mentor-mentee culture. Something that I really think we should focus more on, because there's so much you can learn from doing those kind of things, especially when I look to myself. I mean... I haven't always seen myself as an entrepreneur. I come from a long line of non-entrepreneurs. But when I left management consulting, I switched. and I went to television and to a production company. So we made tons of TV shows around the world. And that's where I met the guy who eventually became my partner in business and also, to a very large extent, my mentor, back called Zach. So I'm 
37 and he's now 54 and each other's exact opposites. So he's a punk rocker from the north of Sweden. I'm a business school MBA guy from Stockholm, the capital. I used to wear suits all the time. He wore this leather and very different stuff. But we really found each other in the center. For some reason, every time he was in the room, I wanted to excel. I wanted him to think that I was really good at what I did. And I was super fortunate enough because he had the same inclination. And until this day, we can't really explain what that sort of is attributed to. It's just something that happened. He was super different. I was always the guy who would sort of build the models and do all the math. And he was the guy who had the crazy ideas and was excellent at selling. So he and I started selling TV shows together. And because we were so different, it just made a ton of sense. I laughed way more than I ever did in my old work. These people around me were making way more money than the people in the old world where I came from. I was doing sort of dinner parties. Suddenly, instead of saying that I'm a management consultant and people look like somebody just died and sort of tilted their head and said, oh, I'm so sorry, but maybe you're a nice guy anyhow. I told them I work with television and people just shut up. The other conversations turned their heads and everyone had an opinion. I mean, there were a number of things that happened that sort of really made that relevant. And sort of finding that person who was a mentor for me was great. It was it was a real game change, and it, it also sort of helped me demystify the term of being an entrepreneur. It's not a formula. It's not something that you read about in school. I think it's a way of thinking, of, a way of questioning things, and a way of embracing failure. Because being an entrepreneur is so much about failure. I mean, nine out of ten times stuff fails, and you pivot, and you pivot, and you pivot, and you sort of get up on the horse and you try it again. And as long as you're in a context with people, you have ideas, and you feel motivated doesn't feel like failure. Some people might argue it is, but it, it, it much more feels, it feels like learning. And you learn and you, as long as you become better and you try new stuff and it gives you new angles and it gives you energy, I think that's sort of super important. So how did you go from management consulting to working in television to ultimately meeting Zach and launching your own production business together? Yeah, and I think there are a couple of different ways you could address that. One is sort of the actual facts, what happened. So I left management consulting. I didn't have anything else to go to. So I started pulling a lot of strings, meeting friends, uh, meeting headhunters. And I met with tons of different companies. Eventually, I was introduced to Zodiac Television, which was a stock-listed Swedish company, made TV shows. And they were a fairly big Nordic company, and the ambition was to become a global company. So I started working there as the right-hand guy to the CEO. So I would make awesome coffee, and I would buy companies. I would take care of our stock listing. I would take care of our Christmas party and everything in between. So if you were prestigious, this job was not for you. Uh, if you were uh, afraid of traveling, this job was not for you. But I was the exact opposite. So this job was obviously perfect for me. It took a massive pay cut. But in terms of quality of life, it quadrupled. So suddenly what I was doing was fun. So in the process, I got to meet Zach, who at the time, he was the biggest owner and the founder of the company. I was terrified the first time I saw him was at a Christmas party. Uh, I'm a pretty tall guy. I'm six foot two, but he's six foot four. And he weighs about 10, 15 kilos more than I do. He's a shaven head and he's a big dude. But he's the softest, most sort of socially skilled person that I've ever come across and I met. So eventually, sort of, I got to know who he is and how he functions. And as I just sort of explained before, we got to know each other well. So we started making tons of TV shows. I was responsible for something at the time, which is still embarrassing to say. It was called New Media. I just, I hate that term. We even, we actually have a website, Zach and I, where we pop out these ridiculous names that we never, ever want to hear again. And New Media is on it as well. Spa is another one of the for some reason. And so I started doing all the New Media stuff. And at the time, this was web TV, mobile TV, IPTV. Everything was interactive. Fortunate enough for me, I mean, in high science, doing that in Sweden, which is sort of, fairly far along the bell curve when it comes to disruption and broadband uh, penetration and sort of uptick of new ideas. That gave me a global, it's not a head start, at least it gave me a global insight into sort of what was happening, where the world was moving. So Zach and I sort of kept on doing shows. I, I played a super small part in the big company as a whole as well. So we made tons of shows around the world. We did The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, we did the Valander films, we did all of the Stig Larsons, both the Swedish ones and the English ones. And it was super successful. And then you have to be really, really humble about this because in 2008, two weeks before Lehman Brothers went bankrupt, we sold the entire company to a big Italian firm. This was just when we released the uh, Steve Larson and the Millennium Trilogy. So they were obviously super happy buyers. We were very proud sellers. And they, I mean, timing is everything. Three weeks later, it doesn't really matter how hard we work or how good we were. 
because things would have been different because the financial markets, markets just dried up and everything went sound. But we were fortunate. And in that process, we felt that, okay, we have a ton of ideas, Zach and I, we want to start them. And I think that to some extent, working in TV production was a great way of launching a number of different businesses because TV shows, as many of your listeners I'm sure will know, I'd say about one in 10 do really well, two out of 10 are mediocre, and seven out of 10 are completely failures. So it's almost analogous to the VC model of investing in startups. It definitely is. And so I think that similar to the VCs, the only problem is you never know which of the 10 is going to be the runaway success. So you have to back all of them and you have to give them all your love. Once you have an idea and you believe about it, or you believe in it, you have to start treating it as though it's, it's an actual TV show, or in this case, like it's an actual company. So we would talk about shows as though it was already cast, as though there already was a pilot. We would put together food reels and stuff to make sure that everyone we met who sort of saw the idea, they already felt that this is up and running. It's not if it's going to be a TV show. It already is a TV show. And that line of thinking, I think, has come to be very useful when it comes to being an entrepreneur as well. Because if you sort of feel strongly about an idea, I think from a TV perspective, you become skilled at nurturing that idea, giving it a lot of respect, giving it time, and also presenting it and pitching it to people all the time in different manners. I think that pitching is probably one of the most interesting things that I learned from TV production, which I have continued to have use for every single day in my career since then. And to be a bit more specific, what what we learned there, and this ties back to your question, James, about sort of how did all of this come to be, people talk about strategy all the time. And I love strategy, but I think something that's hugely underlooked, which is equally important, 10 times more fun, is tactics. So deploying tactics, which are the short-term wins, how do you get what you want or how do you get from A to B, I think it's just as important. So in sales perspectives, the way it would always go down is Zach and I would hop in his car, we would drive over to the TV broadcaster, we would have an idea that we would pitch. And then going into the meeting, one of us would do the talking, the other person would do the listening and do the mental notes. An hour later, we come out of the meeting. And the meeting in itself was, I would probably argue, maybe 30% of the actual pitch. What happens then when we sat down in the car is, okay, she's obviously frustrated with him. She's the boss, but he calls the shot. Last time around, this happens. I'm going to shoot him an email with her on copy. I'm going to do a secret BCC to this person. You're going to email her, talk about this show, and then we're going to highlight this, this channel down here. And that's how you make deals happen. So really understanding sort of, how people function, person behind it. So the tactic in this case was always to understand the dynamics in the room, who's frustrated, who's happy, who likes what, what are their fears, what are their hopes, and playing to those and understanding those. So you'd be surprised how many massive TV shows have been created, launched, and sort of put to the world through those kind of tactics. And I think this is something that has really helped me throughout the years that we've built a number of different companies now, exactly myself, in the sense that understanding people is always at, at the center of what we do. So let's talk a little bit more about where you are today. After you sold your production business, you and Zach went on to uh, start another company. Tell us a little bit more about that. I'd love to. So this is 2008. I think the backdrop you should have in mind is that the entire world has just gone south. Lehman Brothers gone bankrupt. All of there are bank runs around the world and everything is in a pretty bad state. There's this brilliant Swedish guy called Daniel Eck. And at the time, I didn't know him, but now we do. And he launches a company called Spotify. And Zach and I look at each other and we realize, obviously, that this is brilliant, right? So a subscription model makes sense. Paying 10 bucks a month and getting access to all the world's records is better than paying 10 bucks a month and just owning one record and listening for way too long. The other insight that they have is that we should double down on product. If we can make a product, because back then, this is a time when Kassar was rampant and people were stealing stuff and Pirate Bay was getting like that. All those so, great, reputable Swedish companies. There are a few which we're not proud of. There are <laughs> many which we are proud of, and, and then there are uh, the others. But what Daniel and uh, his team did, which I thought was so smart and really appealing, was that um, they said that we need to make a service which is better than piracy. And the only thing which is better than free is something that's good. And so they, they doubled down on product and they started building some really, really attractive product in terms of discovery, ease of use, multi-platform use eventually. And they sort of, they struck gold, if you ask me. And Zach and I looked at each other, and because we were sort of, we knew what we were doing in terms of TV production, and we saw what they were doing. There was another macro thing which was becoming sort of increasingly obvious for us back in 2008, and that was where the online world was going. 
back then it was still fairly much sort of internet in general was a lot about text. It was morphing into pictures. And Zach and I, we were super clear about the fact that over time, it's going to be all about video. So we saw that online from a macro perspective, it's moving to moving pictures and it's going to be professionally produced. And we knew that you pretty much DIY everything, but music couldn't. Music was so complicated when it came to finding music we wanted to use in our TV shows and putting them online. Paying for the music, understanding who owns what and in what geographies and on what different platforms. And it was so difficult. There was this context of representing music and not owning music. And what I mean by that is typically you had publishers, you had record labels, you had multiple writers, producers, and nobody was paying or taking any risks to the, to the entire entity. People instead own small cuts, small shares, small portions of the track. So many people felt entitled to cut the pipe, but nobody felt as though that they owned it and took any responsibility. So it was in a terrible state. And we saw massive problems in finding music and clearing it and using it globally because stuff just broke down all over the place. And so what we did is we said that, well, somebody... Somebody should create Spotify for business. Spotify-esque service, which uh, licenses all the music that you ever want to do for professional producers of content. It should be super scalable. It should be super simple. It should be a one-stop shop where I either sort of buy on a track-by-track basis or, as in the Spotify model, I pay a fixed monthly fee. And I get to use as much music as I like in all the professional content. I don't have to report it. I don't have to block it. I don't have to go through performance rights organizations such as ASCAP or BMI or equivalents in Europe, the GMS and the PRSs in the UK. Somebody should just collapse this market, make it way more easier. Easier from two perspectives, right? So one is obviously from the user perspective, from the MCNs, from the creators, from, from the video producers around the world. And the other one was obviously from musicians' perspective because the way that we saw the music industry was like a rigged lottery. People kept on talking about royalties. I'm not going to pay you anything because there's a good chance that you're going to strike gold when it comes to royalties. And everyone was always talking about royalties and the chance of a big hit. I'm not going to deny that there is a chance, but there's a microscopic chance, and especially when we started doing the numbers. I mean, 99% of people never saw any royalties. And so remuneration wasn't tied to actual hard work. It was tied to a lottery, which in turn was rigged. Because the price points were sort of fixed, if I was a production company, you know, if, I, if I had to pay sort of the, pretty much the same amounts for using a track, if I used super famous repertoire as for up-and-coming repertoire, there was no real sort of incentive for me to risk using something that wasn't uh, already famous. So it was hard for up-and-coming artists to break through as well. And so we said that this is something we want to fix. So how did you go about solving those problems in the music industry? Okay, so we can't join the existing music industry. We're going to have to build a music industry of our own. And what does that mean? Well, we're not going to join the PROs. We're not going to license repertoire from already existing libraries. We're not going to be able to work with the major labels or the indie labels. And we're going to have to build everything from scratch. We're going to have to do it from Sweden because the IP situation is very sort of favorable. And also because the underlying sort of skills that we need in order to produce this kind of company, they're abundant in Sweden. For some reason, we come from an insignificant country with a super weird language. We get to speak English early on, and we're humble about the fact that our, we actually do sound like the Swedish chef in The Muppet Show when we talk. We sing, and it goes up and down, and it's a very melodic language. But we've also had the opportunity to use this to our advantage. So we make sure that we're fairly strong in English. We try and use the melodic language into understanding sort of melody and text and being able to write music. We've had a government system where a lot of computers and infrastructure have been sanctioned by the state so that everyone sort of became quite tech-savvy early on. There have been publicly funded music schools going on forever in Sweden, so a lot of people are really skilled at producing great music. And then we started to export this. So we've had role models in that sense. That you ask me, we're somewhere in the third wave of music export from Sweden. So the first wave was the artists. So you had the Abbas, and you had the Norwegians, front of the camera and in front of the microphone singing and producing fantastic music. 
And then we had the second wave of music coming from Sweden, which was more the producers. So you had the Swedish House Mafias, you had the Avicis, you had the Max Martins, the Dennis Pop, and the Pyro Stems, which were a combination of behind the microphone and in front of the microphone. And now you have the third wave of some music entrepreneurs coming from Sweden, which obviously is Spotify, it's SoundCloud, which is now based in Berlin, but it's founded by Swedes and run by Swedes. And you have X5 and you have ourselves. And I think this has really helped us because we've had role models who've shown us this is how you can do it, this is how you can build something. So I think a combination of uh, great role models and also when we come abroad and we meet people and we say that we're from Sweden and we do music, it makes a ton of sense. I mean, I think Swedes represent maybe 50% of the music on the Billboard top lists because we produce it, not necessarily perform it, but we produce it. So that gives us a lot of credibility. So keeping all these things in mind, so this is this is the backdrop, this is the infrastructure that helped us back in 2008 say, you know what, we're going to create our own Spotify. It's going to be a version, it's going to be a B2B service. We're not going to license music from anyone else. We're going to build our own repertoire. And what we want to achieve is we want to become a service where media producers and video creators, they buy a subscription. And we want to build a library, which is a one-stop shop. So we need to make sure that we have all the music that you're ever going to need to score all the video that you ever want to make. That was our starting point. And what were the next steps to start growing the business? Coming back to tactics and strategy, from a tactical perspective, we had a super clear vision of what we wanted to do. So what we did is we started in our home country, Sweden. I guess you could argue that we broke down kind of some cultural hierarchy, which was obviously not something that was well-defined. It was something that we made up ourselves. But we said that who's biggest fish in the pond when it comes to cultural hierarchies or who, who calls the shots. And our opinion was that there had been a shift. So historically, it, it had been cinemas, but I think ranking five, ten years back, television had taken over the top spot. So our tactical mission was that let's start focusing on the TV producers of Europe. If we can, over a couple of years, if we can build a product, get back to Spotify, if we can double down on product and process, and create something that's super interesting for the TV editors of Europe, over time, because they're at the top of the food chain, because many people are freelancers, once they're happy with our service, then we can start sort of moving around within the cultural context of, of, of video creation. And so very tactically, we started, we kicked things off in television. In less than a year, we had every single broadcaster in Sweden as our customer. The following year, we had the majority of the broadcasters in Northern Europe as our customers. And this is around 2009, 2010, which is when I started flying back and forth to the U.S. quite a bit. Obviously, YouTube was the 800-pound gorilla. So I flew back and forth. I met with their CEO at the time, Salar. It became super obvious that music was a huge issue over at YouTube and in the digital online world as well. And in that process, it became obvious that what we're doing now has global appeal. It's hugely relevant to all the video platforms out there and more so to all the digital content producers. So I found myself in a parking lot. I saw this sign where it said full screen three, four years ago. And I'd heard that name so many times, but I didn't really know what they were doing. And it annoyed me. I'd been in a similar situation back home in Scandinavia where I'd come across companies that were super smart, but I didn't understand the business model. So I made sure that I got to meet the guys. I got to understand the whole MCN prospects and sort of the revenue share, the content ID, and sort of how this was a track block monetized and how this was completely revolutionizing the way digital storytelling was going to spread and monetizing how the ecosystem was going to grow. So coming back to, to Europe, Zach and I sat down and we said that this is obviously hugely interesting. We launched an MCN of our own in Scandinavia called United Screens. But more important than that, we realized that from a tactical perspective, when we start looking at the US, we're not going to focus on broadcasters first. In the US, we're going to focus on the MCNs first because we strongly believe that huge storytellers of tomorrow are all going to come through the MCN space some way or another. Because we put so much time, money and effort into understanding sort of the aches and the pains of, of the content creators on a global perspective, when we then hit the ground running uh, in the US in terms of MCN, things sort of started picking up quite fast. So I want to dig in a little bit more to how your business model differs from that of traditional production companies and then talk a little bit more about your MCN endeavors with United Screens. So I guess first, to talk about Epidemic Sound and recap kind of what you talked about in terms of the business model, Epidemic Sound is unique in that it owns outright the music that is created by these composers. 
So rather than paying them an ongoing royalty or a license in which you're representing their music catalog, you are in fact acquiring the rights. Is that correct? Yes, okay. that's exactly right. To put that into some context, there are two reasons why we do this. I've touched upon them briefly before, but one of the reasons obviously is from a composer's point of view. We want to make sure that composers make tons of money from their music. So what we do is we pay composers upfront. We've had more than 10,000 composers who applied to work for us. And what's interesting with our model is that in the old music industry, you write tracks, you don't get paid, uh, it's a big gamble. And if you're fortunate, you may get some royalty a year and a half down the line. And it's going to be a percentage of what somebody else has collected on your behalf. And your hinges on multiple countries sort of making sure that the information and the money eventually trickles down to you. We completely re-engineered that. And what we said is we want to tie remuneration to the actual work that you do. So there have been thousands of composers who applied. There are a few hundred who work with us, which is super selective. Because quality obviously is a massive issue because it's so time-consuming to listen to music. So you have to make sure that the music has the super high quality. And so we pay people up front. So we pay you uh, $1,000 for this track, uh, $200 for this sound effect, or $3,000 for this track. Yeah. We then own the track. So we own 100% of that track. We put that in the library. And then we come to the other side of the equation, which is the end user, which uh, you've already touched upon correctly. And instead of having to monitor and track the use of that track and pay royalties and sums all over the place, instead you pay a fixed monthly fee. And then you get to use that track for as long as you like and there's no additional reporting there are no boundaries there's no nothing it just scales and it works globally <laughs> it's incredibly it elegant yeah, it, it's super simple I get this question a lot because people say that wow this is so simple I can't believe that nobody's thought about this before my answer is that I think that most ideas tend to be super simple once somebody's somebody's built them I think that the analogy that I would like to make let's say that you're that you've just moved into a new apartment and you want to buy a desk and so the old music industry would, sell, would argue that, okay, we're going to sell you the desks, we're going to rent you the screws, and then you're going to have to pay a royalty every time somebody sits down at the desk. We want you to report that to Ikea because that has value for you. And so it's a fixed fee. There's like a price per screw. And then you also have to report everything on top of that. Oh, and by the way, if, if somebody's sitting at your desk and they're not American, they're European, you have to send the invoice to Europe instead. That's pretty much how, how it worked out. So we entered the space and we said, this is ridiculous. I want to buy a desk. I want to pay for it once. And then I want to own it. And then I want to, I want to cut my film. I want to write my book. I want to do whatever I want to do. I don't want to have to report to anyone else. And this is what we've been able to offer to the online video community. And this is why we've gone from last year, we had about 30,000 customers around the world. This year, we're going to hit more than 100,000 customers in more than 199 different countries. I think the last number I got this week, I think we added about 1,800 new customers last week. Wow, that's tremendous yeah. growth. And so, yeah, things are sort of really, really picking off and we're growing fast. We're having mm-hmm. to sort of handle sort of growth issues as well because it's a luxury problem, but sort of having that kind of growth puts a lot of strain on product, people, processes, music, sort of business model in itself. So it's happy times, but I mean, it's, it's a lot of hard work as well. And you're in the midst of disrupting an industry that has uh, continually gone through a lot of significant change in the past few decades. And a lot of people aren't very happy about it. You know, they don't love the way the epidemic sound model works because it is changing, you know, the reporting structures and the way that composers are compensated, you know, for better or for worse. But I'm sure you've faced your fair share of criticism and concern about how simplistic and elegant your model is. I mean, for sure. Uh, for the last couple of years, we've been the bad boys of the music industry. We've been public enemy number one throughout a few, uh, and let me emphasize this, a few silos within the music industry. This is not true when it comes to the creators and the composers. We've been hailed as heroes because we're sending out millions and millions of euros every single year to composers who are now starting to make tons of money. However, the people who have been very upset with what we do is the middlemen. It's the record publishers, the record labels, the managers, and to some extent the performance rights organizations. It's the myriad of middlemen who've profited hugely on the fact that it's been really, really complicated and that there's been a lot of red tape and a lot of administration where they've been able to take cuts and charge fees and ask for upfronts and minimum guarantees in order to try and help users and musicians navigate in this very complex territory. And the number one critique we get from these middlemen when they're off the record is that, guys, you make us look bad. 
you need to stop what you're doing because you make us look bad. And our answer obviously is, we're super sorry, get better. That's a spot that I, seven days a week, I love that thing. I love waking up and understanding and feeling that we're, we're pushing the, the envelope, we're doing something different. There have been serious threats made to me personally and to our company. So, I mean, at times it's been scary. It's nothing that's gotten us sort of less deter or made us sort of less persuaded than what we doing is right. It's actually the exact opposite. Because people are passionate and because there are a lot of opinions, we know that we're doing something important. We know that we're doing something right. So what does the future hold for Epidemic Sound? So there are a couple of different things. If I were to highlight two things, one would be the digital world just got physical for us. And what I mean by that is for a long period of time, we've been doubling down on global digital business. But what's been interesting is that over the last 12 months or so, there have been a huge amount of physical retailers, shops, stores, shopping centers, malls, uh, restaurants, hotels. We've started reaching out to us as well saying, guys, the old music industry is, to be honest, it's way too complicated for us. Couldn't you start supplying us with music as well? Because we hear great things from the creative community. So we started doing a couple of tests uh, a few months ago, and the response has been overwhelming. So in the last six months now, we've really doubled down on our in-store radio activities. And this is in its, I mean, itself, it's, it's, it's a billion-dollar industry, so it's really interesting and super important for us. And we're seeing a lot of traction and a lot of growth in that area. I understand that's almost 50% of your business now. Exactly. It's growing and becoming something that's very significant for us as well. The other thing which is in the cards, which is exciting, is that we're in a situation where we're probably, during 2016, we're going to be breaking artists, I would assume. This is something that we've spoken about it before, we've had hopes and dreams about it before, but this year is probably when it's becoming a reality. So let's turn now to United Screens, the Scandinavian MCN that you and Zach founded together with some other partners. Tell us a little bit more about that business. As I mentioned before, we started going back and forth. Um, to the US, meeting with initially YouTube, and then eventually starting to rub shoulders with the MCMs in the US. Coming back to Europe, what was interesting is that Zach and I sat, to some extent, we looked at each other and we said that we don't want to start another company. I think at the time we were running three, maybe four companies. We don't want to start another company, but we have to. This is such an interesting area. I think we can say we felt two things. We felt that one, this, this way of paying for distributing and using content is going to significantly alter sort of the business model around online video. We, we have to be a part of it. So that was one side of it. The other side of it was embarrassment because we saw that this was, this was taking off in the US. There were a couple of companies in the UK. And this was nascent in Germany at the time. And there was nothing in Scandinavia from an MCM perspective. So a combination of massive opportunity and embarrassment that nobody was doing this so made us feel that we have to do this more or less. What we did is we teamed up with the CEO of Google Nordics at the time, Stina Honkema. We teamed up with chief strategist of the biggest media company, the biggest traditional linear broadcaster in Scandinavia, which was Bonnier. And between the four of us, we sat down, we built a business model, created a business plan, Again, very much back to where our discussion started, we started pitching it. So very much Zach and I did the pitching, and it was very much along the lines of how we pitched TV shows. So we met with investors, we had track record, we spoke about the company as if it already existed. We've been in the US, we've met different companies who were there. And we could, we could encourage a lot of investors that this was a great idea, and it was already up and running, it was a done deal. So at the end of the day, we were super fortunate. We had multiple investors, and we decided to go with one of the biggest traditional broadcasts in Cornia because of their... Number of different reasons. But again, one of the things we found interesting was they had such a big footprint in terms of media in our area. We had, a, again, a tactical idea that we had. How can we position ourselves so we, we use our insignificant size and our weird language to our advantage? So instead of going after a silo approach where we want to be really big within the stream sports or how-to or music or some kind of genre where we knew there would be a lot of some international competition, we said that initially, let's try and go for a regional approach. So we try and accumulate a lot of talent, a lot of local people. And so we become the default uh, MCN when it comes to having national presence. Fortunately for us, or unfortunately for us, depends on sort of what foot you want to stand on, there was a second MCN which was launched exactly the same time as we did. They're called Splay. 
and they were backed by the biggest sort of other competing media company in the, in the area as well, a group called Modern Times Group. So we, we found ourselves in, in the arms race and we were pretty good, but in a competition, the way I see it, that was the best thing that could have happened for us. We got a lot of media attention, so the advertisers started finding out about what we did early on. There was a lot of talent who either sort of, uh, would reach out to us or to our competitor. And in a very short period of time, what we were able to do is we were able to leapfrog. If you look at the US, because we were a few years behind, because it was a small local market where we doubled down on stuff, which was relevant for us, we were able to look at the do's and the don'ts in the US some extent in the UK and we can decide what kind of stuff were we going to do. We could also sort of see, I'm not going to name any single MTN, but let's just say that some American MTNs grew really huge networks and they came to Europe and they started adding thousands and thousands of, of creators. That created some backlash for us here in Europe because it's very difficult to serve thousands and thousands of partners if you just want them to equal physically. So this was another learning that we could have taken. So instead of trying to go after every single crater in, in Scandinavia, we targeted just a few, the significant ones, who we could make sure that we really took care of and we gave them a lot of love. So we could create sort of smart learnings on the back of that. And so it goes. I think there are many other examples that I could pull as well, but get the general idea that we were we tried to use the fact that we were small and insignificant and late to the game to our advantage. So we, we looked at those to the American MCM to make sure we don't replicate their mistakes. From a language perspective, everyone told us to go with English because it scales way, way better globally. Uh, we decided not to. So initially, we doubled down on our local language, again, because we thought this could be smart in terms of protecting, owning the viewer base. Even though we fairly fluent in English, we watch a lot of American content. The really big hits tend to be local anyhow, and the same is held true from YouTube. And ultimately, a very robust ecosystem has developed in the Nordics. You have Vigor and his team at Splay doing very well for themselves with a full acquisition by the Modern Times Group alongside Zoom and TV. You had Nordic screens pop up in, in Oslo, Totoro uh, with Juna in Finland, and ultimately Muse in Denmark growing as well. And there's some really exciting news for United Screens in the, in the past few weeks. Do you want to share a little bit more about the latest developments? Absolutely. So, yes, I, I agree with everything you're saying, James. It's become a very vibrant area, which is something that we're super happy about. We don't have to feel embarrassed anymore that we're left off the bandwagon, which is great. And then also from, from a United Screens perspective, there's, there's been a huge shift in the sense that the company has now been able to focus more because what's happened is that Zach and I, we decided to sell our shares uh, to the other founders within the company. There are multiple reasons for this, but uh, one, focus is always good. And so given what I've just spent the last hour and a half explaining what we're doing at Epidemic Sound, I think it was obvious for all of us that Epidemic is it's a global company with sort of universal potential and we're growing at an incredible rate. So this is where we've been for the last years and this is what we're focusing on. From the United Screens perspective, that's exploding as well, but there needs to be more focus and sort of fewer people running the show is, is, in my opinion, better. So Stina and Maltembonia now own all of the company and they've been their execution is fantastic, so that's doing really well also. So I've now gone from being involved in a ton of different companies to focusing on Epidemic Sound, and I think that both companies are, are way better off for it. And in addition to that, in all of your spare time, you serve on the board of the children's entertainment company Tokoboka. Tell us a little bit more about that. Tokoboka is a company I'm super proud of being involved with. I'm not a founder, I'm going to be care about that. I'm not an owner, I'm not a founder, I only sit on their board, but I'm super flattered to be sitting on their board. It's such a talented team, and it, at least in Sweden, it, it really is an unsung hero, because they've been around since 2008, 2009, I think, and they've sold just north of 100, 100 million apps to kids, which are all about play. And I think there's just under about 30 apps which are in the rapid point. And I think that in terms of building a brand, building um, culture, uh, and building a product which is used and loved by literally over 100 million people around the world, Tokoboka has, has come so far on some digital play. It's, it's incredible. What Tokoboka are doing now is that doubling down on video, uh, which is obviously super relevant for our chat here. So Tokoboka are now doubling down on Toka TV. It's been in the ropes now for about a year. Uh, they hired a guy from, called Jay, who's from uh, Sesame Street. 
uh, his colleague Dave. What we're doing now is super exciting. There's obviously a lot of stuff happening in video. There's some stuff happening in video for children as well. Think about uh, YouTube uh, for kids and some, a number of different platforms and assets as well. But the whole app approach to video and curating it and putting it to bed together in a context which makes sense, which gives a lot of excitement for kids and peace of mind for parents is a really compelling and interesting area to, to be in. There are a few things where I feel sort of more bullish than, than I do about the sort of whole talk of TV experience that we're now about to embark on. It's going to be an incredible ride, I think. So now I want to turn to some rapid fire questions. First off, you know, you've said before that entrepreneurship requires one to thrive on uncertainty. And startup culture today is often glamorized, but the reality is far from that, right? We see uh, images and stories of these massive successes, but what are the hard parts about being an entrepreneur and how can someone know if he or she is cut out for it? I think that one of the best ways of addressing the question is to say that I believe in goals, but more than goals, I, be, I believe in breaking big goals down into really, really small goals. I think that one of the toughest things about becoming an entrepreneur is taking the initial baby steps to get there. So let me give you a few examples. So me personally, I, I got salmonella, which is a disease when I was out traveling a number of years ago. And it, it, it gets your joints and so it, it can put you down quite a bit. And instead of, uh, I had a goal I wanted to run a marathon despite of this. And if you have that kind of goal and you don't break it down into smaller things, the whole idea of running a marathon becomes overwhelming. So what I did is that uh, I wanted to run a 1K uh, race. And so I sort of made sure that I, I, I did. And then I wanted to run a 5K race. And then I wanted to run a 10K race. And then I did a 15K race. And then I did a 30K race. And then eventually the, the, the idea of running a marathon, it wasn't daunting. It wasn't an issue. It was just another race, but it was a bit longer than the other ones. And I think that the same holds true for entrepreneurship. You should, you should try and break down your goals so that they aren't so daunting that they aren't so big. But I think that that's probably the toughest thing in entrepreneurship, getting started. And the way you, sort of, you understand it, if, if you have it in you or you, you facilitate for yourself, is to break things down into way smaller goals and sort of just start doing stuff. Now, Sweden has given rise to several successful tech startups, including Ericsson, Skype, and Spotify. How does the Stockholm startup scene compare with, say, Silicon Valley, LA, or New York? It's obviously way smaller, at least if you can practice it combined. But in terms of culture, I'd say it's super vibrant. It's, it's a little less hospitable than I say in English, than the U.S. Because my feeling is that in the U.S., in the places you mentioned, everyone is always about doing introductions, helping each other, and there's, there's a high level of people helping each other out. I would argue that in Sweden, we're getting there. We're still, to some extent, sort of, uh, secretive. We're not that good at talking to each other. We're quite quiet, so we don't do intros as frequently. We don't help out in the same sense. Not because we're spiteful, but because it's not natural in our DNA. But I think this is something that we're learning more and more, and we're seeing a sort of so many different incubators and VCs. And again, because there are there've been quite a few really successful exits and. and companies built in this area, we get a lot of attention nowadays. So I think that the community is becoming sort of nicer and warmer by the day, which is very welcome and very good. It seems that entrepreneurship is deeply embedded into the culture. Maybe there's something in the water because I'd heard that, you know, the Nordic countries account for 4% of Europe's population, but actually 25% of the startup exits that occur in Europe. I've heard the same numbers. They're, they're fascinating. It's something I'm proud of. But again, I think that the reason why we're seeing these numbers goes back to the fact that we're an insignificant country with a weird language. We sort of tackled that head-on sort of from, from the get-go. So we made sure that all of our companies, because our home market is so small, we're only 9 million people, nobody builds a business to be big in Sweden. You automatically build it to be big globally because otherwise you don't stand a chance. So when a lot of other companies hit a glass ceiling because they've only optimized for Minnesota or for um, France or for something like that, which is in theory big enough to sort of ha have carry an industry in its own right, we always make sure that we go global from day one. We do fairly well when it comes to English, so that helps us also as well. And we tend to be insecure overachievers. So I think a lot of people who've had any kind of interaction with Swedes the first time around, if they can live with our weird accent and our fumbling and our mumblings and when we eventually get to the point 
they tend to like us because we get shit done. We, we're no drama. We're no drama queens. We stick to our word. So that's sort of, I think if you start digging within those companies, you see a lot of multi-time entrepreneurs. So if you look to Skype with Samstrom, who also did Casar, who also did Yust and all of those things. If you look to Skype with Daniel, who did Stardog and a lot of other things, and Andreas Ian, who did Rap. People are serial entrepreneurs. And I think that has to do with that, yeah, we stick to our guns and get shit done. Speaking of being a serial entrepreneur, if you were starting a business today in the online video space, what would you do? This is a bit of a cliche, but I love the quote, when going to Alaska, you shouldn't try and sell gold. You should sell people shovels or you should sell people jeans. So I think that if I were looking at the space, to some extent, it's obviously already what we do at Epidemic Sound. Uh, as opposed to trying to make a hit show or a piece of content, if possible, I would try to sort of think across the industry. What is there that everyone, what is it that everyone wants and that scales and sort of and obviously, it has to be something that you're passionate about, which is fun, because there's going to be so much hard work involved. Trying to think in a different direction than everyone else, because everyone is everyone is about OTT and content and sort of owning that stuff. Try and allow yourself to think the other way around. So, what's the Levi's version of this? What's the shovel version of the industry? What does everyone need as sort of a part in everything, which you can just become a really interesting business in itself. If you had to offer three predictions for what's coming next in the music space, what would you say? Let me think for a while. Three predictions, what's coming next. Well, one, I think the first thing that we're starting to see now is that finally we're getting some traction when it comes to discovery. If you look at what Spotify is doing now with Truffle Pig and the Echo Nest and all the different algorithm-driven search and creation tools, I think that's something which is uh, incredibly interesting. So we're going to see a lot more curation and discovery finally starting to be solved or at least addressed. The other thing that we're going to see a lot in the current future is if you look to video and you look to original productions, if you look to the Narcos on, on Netflix or similar stuff on, on services, music industry for a very long time have been spared from that in the sense that if you go to sort of big subscription services, you tend to find the entire repertoire in one place, which has been hugely valuable and has helped the music subscription industry to grow. I think we're going to be seeing more and more platform-specific partnerships. We're going to be seeing the narcos of Deezer, the narcos of Spotify, and, and the narcos of Beats and Apple. And I think that's going to be hugely interesting to see how that affects the end user in terms of our music consumers going to be okay with sort of certain pieces of music only being found in certain sort of platforms and not everything being available for everyone everywhere and who wins the streaming wars is it spotify is it apple music is it youtube music i'm a swede of course it's spotify (laughs) of course course. do you foresee future uh continued disintermediation of all the middlemen you talked about earlier and simplification of that value chain which today is so complex absolutely i definitely see that and it's super simple because it's driven by quality of data historically one of the reasons why why it's been able to morph into the situation where it is today is because data has been hard to come by and the quality of data has been questionable. As the quality of data becomes exceptional now, the amount of data is a challenge in itself, but that's something that Fortune sort of cloud services can look to uh, address. And I think that as people get more and more knowledge and awareness into what works and what doesn't, that's something that's going to affect the industry a lot. I think my favorite comparison on that note is that, I mean, it's, if you look at it, it's ridiculous because for years now, I've been getting my invoices from my, from my carrier, from, from my cell phone company, and they can show me exactly who I called at what time, at what rate per minute, in what part of the world, what phone number, everywhere. I mean, I get every single transaction, every single piece of data I've got broken down for years now. And we're talking about billions of people. And to think that we shouldn't have that kind of clarity when it comes to streams and views, be it music or be it video, is ridiculous. I think that, of course, we're going to see a massive sort of increase in the quality of data, the amount of data that we can handle. And when we do, I think that one of the interesting sort of consequences of that is that I think the value of IP is going to increase because as we get to a point where piracy isn't going to work anymore, it's going to be marginalized to a way bigger step, both in terms of music, but also in terms of, of, of video. I think the value 
of the industry, the value of IP is going to shoot upwards because there's so much more value that can be created and that can be extracted and that can be extrapolated. So I think that's going to have a huge effect on the entire industry. Well, I want to be sensitive to your time. I'm sure we could talk, you know, all day, but just a couple quick questions to wrap up. First of all, any books that you've read recently that you just couldn't put down? I have three kids, all under eight, and company running three companies. So the answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> all the books you're reading are coloring books or pop-up books right now? Exactly. At bedtime? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I, there have been a couple of awesome coloring books, though, with Pippi Longstocking, I have to say. There we go. They're really good. And what recommendations or advice do you have for uh, the people listening? I would definitely recommend that if you have, and I hope you do, some big, hairy, scary goals, things, stuff that you want to achieve, break them down into as many and as small as possible micro goals and start achieving them immediately. Launch a Kickstarter campaign just so you know how it works. Create an account, create a video. As I said before, consult, sell something. Uh, just try and sort of start and participate in tons of really small things so you start accumulating uh, experience and sort of breaking down the big goals so it becomes something that's just super obvious that over time automatically is going to happen. And Oscar, where can people find out more about you and more about Epidemic Sound? I would invite everyone to come look us up at uh, epidemicsound.com. Everyone and anyone can create a free account listen, stream as much music as you like. You can read up all about us, how to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, everywhere where we are. But yeah, I would argue, come to the website. That's where the music is. That's where the magic happens. And that's where we hopefully can get to know each other way, way better. Well, thank you again for being on the show. So much fun, incredible insights about music, about the evolution of the video space, about your career and trajectory as an entrepreneur. I certainly learned a lot and I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, Oscar. Thank you so much, James. It's been a pleasure talking to you as always. And stay in touch soon again. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.